You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I sometimes would crave a word. I would go to bed thinking about it, and in my dreams, someone would say it. The next morning, that word would be the first one in my head. I would go through my day hoping to hear it. For me, there was, and still is, an appreciable distinction between hearing the word said and saying it for myself, though both would produce the same incomings. It was the difference between being served a good meal and having to cook one for myself. I would long for the word like it was a spoonful of peach cobbler, the kind that Bridges served only on Saturdays. Monique Trung is the author of The Book of Salt. Her new novel is Bitter in the Mouth. Thank you for joining me, Monique. Thanks for having me, Rick. Monique, this is a wonderful novel about family, and it builds it up in layers. And that makes me really think that your perception of family is as a series of layers. And you lay this out beautifully for this, us in this book. As you crafted the novel, did you create the family in layers, or were they already existing out there for you to just layer into the book itself? Um, that's... I love the fact that you think of it as a layering. Um, you know, I'm not quite sure if I thought of it consciously as that, as I was working on it. But for me, that family emerged first with Linda, you know, the main character, and her great uncle. And then everyone else sort of, I think of it as um, they're in separate rooms. <laughs> <laughs> and they just come on in <laughs> and join join the little party in this book. Um, but I do think, I suppose that that uh, a family is is um, uh, maybe it's more like a series of of those Russian dolls, mm-hmm. right? Nesting dolls. Nesting dolls, right? Um, you th- you th- have this large, you know, the the main one, and as you go in. They're, you know, they reveal themselves to you, and and it's it's only with time that you absolutely begin to understand them. Well, one of the things I think that you do very well in this novel is you play with time and you use it, and you reveal us to us different aspects of the character's life, chronologically. Mm. And, and so, as a writer, talk about. Um, how you you have a really beautiful sense of story in this book, and talk about how that is developed at a prose level and at a at a higher level. Mm. I think, uh, just generally speaking, I think of the novel as really being the slowing down of time, and I really want to encourage, you know, that that reading experience mm. in my book. Um, so much of our lives is, is about doing things as quickly as possible, doing multiple things. And with a novel, I think there is that opportunity to just simply allow someone else to take 
the rain, you know, and, and, and lead you slowly through the rooms. You know, again, I'm going back to that idea of the rooms in a house, you know, because I think maybe I thought of this narrative in that way. Um, you know, I, I, this book is written um, in the first person voice. And I, I really do believe that um, if someone is telling you their story, um, they are not telling you a story in chronological order. They rarely do in real life, you know, their life story, let's say. They're going to emphasize some things. They're going to underplay other things. And, and I think um, in life, as in this book, the, the person who's telling the story is only going to tell you the most relevant and important things when she feels that it's safe to do so. And I think that Linda Hamrick in this book doesn't feel safe in the beginning of the book. And there is that process that happens of returning to her hometown and rethinking this, this and remembering this childhood of hers that that allows her eventually to tell you what she needs to tell you. You were describing this book as a, a house, and that concept actually comes up uh, later on in the novel in the, the form of what, what is called sometimes a memory palace. Mm-hmm. Where, and you have an interesting mapping of that into the memory meal. But, but let's talk about this, this concept of a memory palace. Is this something that you yourself have used to, to help uh, memorize things or, or to understand maybe even a novel itself? Um, I have a terrible memory, Rick. <laughs> and, and I wish I you know, had the ability to use a, a mnemonic device the way that uh, Linda uses in this book. Um, I think you're referring to the idea of the mnemonic device that the ancient Greeks use. The yes? city, yeah. Yes, the city. As you, as you travel through the streets of a city, you place certain uh, facts. And then when you retrace your steps in that quote-unquote city, you retrieve the facts, right? Mm-hmm. So um, Linda's mnemonic device, though, is, of course, the flavors of the words. And they help her remember and remember in almost photographic details some of the scenes of her life. For me, I have something akin to it, which is that I am I cook a lot. And I actually have, I think, like many cooks, we have a memory mm-hmm. um, of, for flavors. You know, so if you said the word celery, I can think of what that flavor would be like. I can recall it, you know, very vividly, mm-hmm. uh, and so on. And so in that way, I actually do remember people via the foods that we had, you know, when I first met them, for example. You know, so it works in both ways. Like, I remember the flavor. I can recall it. But I also, it, you, it helps me to remember the person. And, like, right now you're drinking <laughs> bottled water, but we talked about oatmeal before we started taping. And I'll always... Um, probably remember you and and oatmeal together (laughs) (laughs) so long as it's bob's red mill steel cut i'm good okay one of the things that i think uh, is one of the key aspects of this book is that the character experiences synesthesia throughout the novel so 
explain to us what that is and how you came across this concept. It's not something that, that you yourself experienced, I understand. That's right. Um, I don't have synesthesia, um, but the main character in Bitter in the Mouth has a form of synesthesia. Uh, and I should say that synesthesia is a term that basically means the mixing of the senses. Mm-hmm. And it's a neurological condition. And her form is auditory gustatory synesthesia, which means that when she says or uh, hears certain words, they trigger a taste for her. One of the things that that does is that turns this book into a remark. This is one of the most sensuous books I've ever read, even though there's not not in what is generally held to be that term, but in just a book that's rich of the senses and of the a sense of the language itself and language itself as a sensuous device. Talk about developing the uh, prose style that you use to give readers to convey in a reading experience, which is a term I really love what your character experiences. One of the sort of challenges of writing this book was was really how to convey Linda's experience with the word, you know, in a way that um, would sort of fully communicate her sort of uh, just the, the experience, mm-hmm. you know, for the reader. So... Um, one of the things that I, I really wanted to do was try to, to write about taste in a way that is different from the way that, for example, um, um, you would write about taste if you were writing about just food per se. Mm-hmm, okay? Mm-hmm. For, I'll give you an example. When I write about the taste of dill, the word dill, mm-hmm. you know, I thought about it as a sort of like an architectural space that you enter into. So it wasn't something you just experience, but it's actually you enter into, I believe it was a room where something faintly medicinal had been kept, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know? Our, uh, the taste of lemon juice is um, sunlight through a high window. Uh, that's a really interesting approach. One of the things I think that makes this book so so uh, interesting and captivating uh, is uh, the sense of language and the importance of language in, in this novel to to the character. Because at one point we we realize that um, she can't even uh, watch TV because of of the experience of words, and that makes us think of our experience of words as well. That's right. I think that, you know, for me, because I learned English as a second language, words have been for me always something very self-conscious. You mm-hmm. know, they weren't something that naturally just, you know, I, they were not just natural things that came out of my mouth. They were <laughs> things, they were objects. Mm-hmm. You know, they were to be studied, to be turned around, to be, you know, examined. And and so I think it... it at least for me, it makes a lot of sense that I would write about a character who had such a, a sort of a, such a specific 
relationship with words and one that is unique to her and has unfortunately no relationship with the rest of the world's right. relationship with the word. And, and this is something she chooses to keep secret. And because in her family, as they say, we we don't have we don't want crazy in our family, and it's an interesting neurological condition. Did you study some of the neurology of, of people who experience synesthesia? I did. I when I began this book, I read a number of studies about synesthesia, but I've realized that since in the seven years <laughs> since I began the research, there has been. Alive developments. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes. At the time that I was doing the research, the book, I think it was probably con- the seminal book mm-hmm. on this was by Dr. Richard Sidewick. So, yeah, The Man Who Tasted Shapes. Of I, course. I love that book. Yes, <laughs> yeah. yes. And, you know, I reread it recently just to refresh my memory. Mm-hmm. And I realized that the man who tasted shapes, I mean, the actual man that he's referring to, was on, someone who was living in North Carolina. Oh, really? <laughs> The primary patient of his who, who tasted shapes lived in North Carolina. Yes. Now, I, one of the things that, that brings us uh, to, to the setting of this book, and, and I got pretty far through this book before I realized that, you know, this really is a Southern Gothic. <laughs> and it made me think of the range of Southern Gothics. On one hand, of one end of the scale, we have, uh, say, Flannery O'Connor, which is pretty dark and brutal and, and harsh. But on the other hand, hand of the scale, we have uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, which mm. is, I think, the genteel Southern <laughs> Gothic. And that's this is not quite so genteel as that. But So uh, could you talk about how Southern literature and your upbringing in Northern Carolina influenced your, your sense of story and style? Well, I really think of this book as a Southern Gothic novel, as my take on it. And, you know, Rick, to me, one of the hallmarks of a Southern Gothic novel is the secret, the family secret, Mm. or the, and it's often a person, right? Mm -hmm. In To Kill Mockingbird, it's Boo Radley, right? Mm -hmm. In Truman Capote's Other Voices, Other Rooms, it's it's the uh, cross-dressing uncle. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can go through every single Southern Gothic novel and pull out that um, that person. And usually it's someone who has, you know, some sort of purported or actual physical or mental difference. Mm-hmm. And so I thought to myself, what if I wrote a book where the narrator is that secret? And what happens when she reveals herself? And how would that change the way that we see her and the story? Well, yeah, there's a great line in here where she says she's Boo Radley. (laughs) Mm. Uh, As you uh, wove this this neurological disorder into your narrative, could you talk about how that also shapes this family and the way you told the story of this family? Because this is a a novel of what I call... um, plot as character revelation, where the plot that we're following isn't so much what's happening, people walking around or shooting or meeting up or whatever. What's the plot for us is to figure out who the main character really, 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 really is. (laughs) 
Yes, that's right. The this the way that um, this book is structured is is really about how the main character is a mystery to herself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and it, and it is her, you know, her either finally choosing to see or finally choosing to ask the right questions about herself. Um, and she takes us on that journey, you know. Um, it begins, you know, the, the book, is, as you know, is, is divided into two parts. And the first part is basically Linda um, remembering her childhood, revisiting it in her mind. But in the second half of the book, it's, it's an actual physical return to that place that she has this little town called Boiling Springs. And the actual return, the physical return, is actually something that I did <laughs> in, in the process of writing this book. I went back to Boiling Springs. <laughs> well, you know, that was, that was really interesting for me um, because the way you create Boiling Springs in the book, it seems kind of mythic. Even the name seems kind of mythic. And, and it seems to exist more in, uh, in an unreal, uh, fantastic version of the South where the, where the main character can taste words and, and has all these this very unusual family. And, and I wanted to ask you about rebuilding the world of your youth as that kind of Southern Gothic, eternal, exists outside of time, eternally fantastic world. Mm. Well, um, Boiling Springs was given to me (laughs) (laughs) Um, in the sense that it really is a town in North Carolina uh, towards the western tip of North Carolina, right on the North-South Carolina border. And it was the first town that my family and I lived in when we came to the U.S. as refugees Mm -hmm. in the mid-70s, 1975. Um, How old were you? I was um, seven years old by then. Mm-hmm. I had turned six in the relocation camp, which was here in California, really? Camp Pendleton. Wow. Um, so it, um, I mean, to be very honest, it was not the happiest of childhoods. <laughs> uh, no, I can imagine not. I mean, uh, how did you end up in North Carolina? I, I, not to put too fine a point upon it, it must have, you guys must have felt and seemed somewhat out of place. <laughs> Really? <laughs> You're right. We were out of place. <laughs> Very literally out of place. Um, we were there because in order to get out of the relocation camps, mm-hmm. you had to be sponsored by a family or by a church or by an organization of some kind. And we were sponsored by a family who lived in Boiling Springs. Wow, that's so interesting. <laughs> and, uh, and it really goes to uh, talk about your... A sense of family, too. Mm. Well, yes. You know, I've sometimes when you're working on a book, uh, it is, in a sense, a mystery to you as well, the author. Mm-hmm. You know, you believe you're writing something, but in fact, you're writing something else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and uh, for example, with this book, you know, there it's about an actual, I mean, a family, a nuclear family, right? Mm -hmm. But also it is really, I think, about the the greater idea of a family. The family we choose. Right, 
right? And how and how we are able to choose from within our family and from outside of our family, right? And in a very, I mean, when I say when we say the word outside in the context of this book, it really is, you know, outside. Mm-hmm. I want the reader to be no. able to fully experience this. I, I agree. <laughs> so really, I'll just say that you know, there's also I try to reflect on the idea, really, of the United States as being a country that welcomes, you know, uh, immigration mm-hmm. and, and people from different countries. And that idea is really also about family, mm-hmm. you know, who we choose and why, and how it is actually possible to construct a cohesive family from different uh, and seemingly, uh, you know, disparate elements. As I read this, you mentioned it's written in the first person, and it's set in the city where you grew up, and the character is contemporaneous with you, about the same age as you. And I was thinking of this as a memoir, that um, this could, in in its own fictional world, this is the, the, the memoir uh, of uh, Linda Hamerick, and, and f- she's a lot like you. <laughs> and, and I wanted you to talk about creating this fictional character who's close to you, like you, share some of your experiences in your mind, and setting down her memoir and, you know, trying to keep it from being your memoir. <laughs> and, and keep how much distance and how much interplay is there between those things? Mm. You know, with Bitter in the Mouth, I was writing in the voice of a woman mm-hmm. as opposed to a gay man, which was my voice in The Book of Salt. So that, in addition to Linda's biography, <laughs> clearly there was more uh, that I had in common with Linda Hamrick, the character. But uh, Linda is not me. Mm-hmm. Um, I I don't, I mean... As as a writer, I don't find it interesting uh, as a project to simply document my own life mm-hmm. or my own experience or anyone else's experience. I like the refraction mm-hmm. of those things rather. But as write, but when you're writing the book, you're writing it from the first person, and for for Linda, this is a memoir. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering how, if you could talk about the whatever magic it is you do that turns you into her when you're writing the prose? Well, I think the way that I, I would explain it is that it for me, it's, it's the language. Mm-hmm. It's, it's her voice, her vocabulary that I enter into. And, um, and I think that's, for me, the... It's a world of prose. Yes, exactly. It's, it's a character building process that begins on the level of language for Mm -hmm. me, if that makes sense. Absolutely, yeah. And I think with this particular character, what makes it so interesting is her experience of language is so different and so sensual compared to everybody else's experience of language. Sadly for her, her vocabulary at least in the beginning part of her life, you know, is 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 often <laughs> coupled with the most terrible foods. <laughs> I think that's a really interesting choice for you because uh, yes, because her mother is is not not the best cook in the world, and so her experience of flavor—the only flavor she's ever has to relate anything to 
are bland and somewhat unpleasant. <laughs> that, that's an understatement. I mean, you know, I I have a very um, conflicted relationship with the f- the American foods that I had first when I came here to mm-hmm. the U.S. And you know, food in the mid '70s in small town America was just strangely terrible. It you was know, epically bad. Epically bad. Right. It was very processed and packaged and canned. Mm-hmm. And frozen was a step, you know, above canned. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So um, I, it's odd because, you know, Linda is, it was a way, her condition rather, was a way for me to revisit that mm. as well. Things that I never eat anymore, you know. I remember people... When we first came to Boiling Springs, people donated food to us, mm-hmm. you know, and many of, I mean, we had nothing. So food, clothing, but the food that we were given were canned foods, mm-hmm. you know. And I remember getting, my family getting cans of potatoes. <laughs> it seems really creepy, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, um. Let's talk about some of the one of the things that you do in here is you create a, a wonderful cast of characters and uh, at the top of the list is is Baby Harper. I, I absolutely love this guy. He's such a, a a magnetic character. How fully did you experience him? Since he starts on page one, how fully did you experience him? He came to me at the exact time that Linda came to me as a character. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, Baby Harper, who is Linda's great uncle, many ways he came to me more fully formed than Mm -hmm. Linda Hamrick did. I mean, he he was very much like Bin from the Book of Salt, the narrator from the Book of Salt, in a sense that he came with his sense of humor, (laughs) you know, his his, uh, particular personality, quirks, and the idea that when he's trying to suppress a laugh, he has a little hiccup, mm-hmm. you know, that just, uh, that was like a visitation, <laughs> you know, really mm-hmm. everything about him. And I miss him terribly. I, oh, I imagine so. He's such a, he's such a, a, a lovely character uh, as opposed to uh, Linda's mother, Deanne. Now, this is a really interesting mother-daughter dynamic, and it's you know it's a super key, integral part of the plot. Talk about how much of the plot of this book, in terms of the revelations that we see, did you know going in, and how much of it developed as you explored this prose world you were creating? Mm. With um, Bitter, I knew what note the book had to end with. Mm -hmm. And I mean, and when I say note, I actually mean word. (laughs) (laughs) And that word is, you know, I don't think this gives anything away, is stay. Mm -hmm. And um, the way that I write is I have um, quite a number of note cards, Mm. you know, with with um, characters and, and plot developments that I needed to incorporate or I want to. And the word stay had its own note card from the very beginning. Mm. And I knew that I had to get my character, Linda Hamrick, 
to that word. How? (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know. 287 (laughs) pages. Right. There's lots of storytelling that goes on in this book, and it's very interesting as we experience it on the level of Linda's, uh, as the novel itself is a story, and the different stories that are told uh, within the family. And I think this is a really um, undervalued part of being an American, is the American family stories. It's, they're really powerful parts of how we define ourselves and define our relationships and even define our entire family. Mm. It's true. Um, I think, you know, the stories that are told within our families, you know, you're right, about especially American families, it's always, um, not always, but most often, it, there is the story of the journey, mm-hmm. you know? And then also either the choice or the need to love, come here. I love these kind of archetypal breakdown that, that, you're, that you're giving me because I haven't, you know, seen or, or thought of it in that way. It, it's true that we do have kind of story archetypes that we with our that our families fill in with their own personal experiences now i'm sure your family has many stories and i wonder how many uh, did any of them end up in the book or did you have to create all of these out of whole cloth or were some of them just rewoven cloth <laughs> one of the things um that i deal with a lot in this book is the idea of the family photographs, mm, right? Mm-hmm. And that's another form of storytelling. You know, I never thought about it that way, but that's absolutely the case, yes. And, and, and Harper, Baby Harper is a prodigious photographer of everybody. That's right. Um, but because he's the photographer, he's never photographed. Well, yes. <laughs> and that's his way of also writing himself out of a story. And for me... Um, you know, one of the saddest parts about the way that uh, my family had to leave Vietnam is that we lost, like everyone else, many things. But it's the family photographs that is most sort of um, uh, most cherished and, and missed. You, you know? know, I was talking with somebody who who was a, a fireman and said that that was the that was the first thing that people go back for after a house burns down is to find they don't care about anything else but finding the photographs and that's an interesting observation you just made i like that mm. yes it's it's the thing that says that we were here mm. <laughs> right mm-hmm. and for me there is also you know within my own family there's the element of you know for example i have a half sister from my father's first marriage and that was actually a piece of information that my family, my mother is, is his second wife, they didn't share that with me until I was, I think, maybe 11 or 12 when I found a photograph of a girl who looked like my father, and, she, and I asked, who is this? And then the story emerged. Wow, that's so fascinating. And I can see how that plays out in, in, in that, that kind of discovery, at least, plays out in, in the novel. You know, the, the family that, that, that we're, we're given is so interesting. We, we have Linda, 
and we have Deanne, the mother. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about the mother because mm. she's one of the least sympathetic mothers I've encountered <laughs> recently <laughs> in, in, in fiction. But despite the fact that she's not likable in any obvious sense, I think that readers enjoy being with her because she is so much herself. Mm. Well, you know, Deanne is a character, when you first meet her, she really is the most uncaring, sort of not present mother you can, you know, sort of imagine. But I think with the thing that I tried to do as the book progresses is that by the time you finish the book, you have a a completely different perspective Mm -hmm. on Deanne. And she becomes more fully realized, more human, and you understand some of what was going on in the first half of the book that she held within her mm-hmm. that Linda could not see. Linda could not have, as a child, understood everything that was going on with Deanne. And that, to me, is just such a... It's an experience, I think, we have with all of our parents. Mm-hmm. You know, as a child, we see them as these shells. You know, we don't understand the internal sort of workings, their emotional lives. And it's only when we become adults and their age at whatever moment they were our parents, you know, that's when we finally see them. And as you know, the the book begins with a quote mm-hmm. from To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, Atticus says that most people are, are really nice once you finally see them. You know, and it strikes me, too, that that's kind of what you're talking about, this discovery of our parents. Um, that's a, As adult children, that's a really interesting topic that I don't think gets explored much. And I think your observation of this, that, that, that the way that what you just told me is borne out in such an interesting and engaging way in the plot and, and a, a, a way that's both somewhat mysterious in that we are we start the the novel with a mystery that we don't even necessarily know exists and then you solve that mystery mm-hmm. for us so talk about um arc, the architecture of this novel because it's at once somewhat simple but it's very complicated it, it looks simple but it, i think underneath there's a lot of stuff going on was did this happen at the prose level or did it happen at the note card level i think it happened on the note card level mm-hmm. uh in this sense I When I first began writing the book, it, it did begin with the way that chapter one begins. Mm-hmm. You know, Often that's not the case when you're writing. But I, I knew it was a woman looking back at her childhood. But I wasn't quite sure at what point she was looking back. And, you know, one of the things I wanted to do with that looking back is that I wanted to play also with the, the way that the language would go back and forth between the adult Mm-hmm. knowing language and then sort of and sometimes it would slip into this very s- simple childlike way of telling a story so um that's where i began that's that was my thought you know that but then in terms of the structure there are indicators there are pages in the beginning of the first half and the second half of the book that basically tells you this book actually takes place on only on two days mm-hmm. right august 3rd and 4th mm-hmm. 1998 sure sure but it's only as you 
go towards the middle of the book that you understand what the significance of August 3rd and August 4th is. Mm -hmm. One of the things is that I did not realize that I I needed to bring Linda physically home. Mm. You know, I thought it would just be a remote, you know, she's in New York. Remote viewing. (laughs) Remote viewing. And sometimes that's not enough. Mm -hmm. And do you know how I figured that out? <laughs> you, you went back to Boiling Springs I yourself? did. I did. And it was profoundly important to be there physically. Mm. Be, you know, I'll, I'll give you a very clear example. I saw the little red brick schoolhouse that I went to in Boiling Springs, the elementary school. And in my mind, for all these years, it was this terrible hurtful place. And when I was there, looking at it, it was tiny, it was small, it was actually incredibly adorable, you know, straight out of a a little, you know, movie. And I realized, oh, I'm, I'm an adult. (laughs) (laughs) This place is small. (laughs) And I can leave. And I know that sounds very simplistic, but I had to be there to mm-hmm. have that realization. And there is something about coming back to a place that is hurtful in your life as a child and and knowing that you can leave. And that's the difference, right? As a child, you could not leave that place. You were, that's where you had to be. But now as an adult, you can pick yourself up and go, or you can stay. And that's your choice. You know, one of the things I think that's the, the threads of this novel that's really wonderful is uh, Linda's uh, relationship with Kelly, her, mm. her friend, or her, 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 her actually the sister of her choosing. Mm. And I love the idea of numbered letters. <laughs> it's so <laughs> funny. It took me a while to twig that they were numbered letters, but yes, they are. That's right. They, you know, because of Linda's condition, it's, it's much more enjoyable for her to communicate via words, mm-hmm. you know, the written word. Mm-hmm. And lucky for her, she had a best friend named Kelly who was very intelligent and also in her way very, you know, awkward and uh, and different from the people around her when she's young. You know, she's she's an overweight child. And so they these two little girls find each other or um and they they exchange there, you know, from the silliest piece of information to the deepest sort of information about each other via just a series of letters that, like Linda says, you know, is pretty much nonstop from the time they meet at the age of seven to Linda's current age, which is 30. And there's something I think very lovely about their relationship beyond it's, it's the letters. Very sweet. It is sweet, but I think there's also, I think for me, something very visceral and strong. Mm -hmm. You know, girls at a certain age, before they hit puberty, before boys or other sort of um, (laughs) outside interests enter into their lives, the friendship between girls is so strong and so, I mean, it, it, I don't want to use the word sexual, but the word is really more like um, maybe it's not even, it's a kind of just intense, sensual 
all-encompassing kind of friendship. Passionate. Passionate. That's a great word. Thank you, Rick. (laughs) (laughs) You know, one of the things that I think is interesting in this book is, is what you do with the sexuality of the characters, because the book itself is very, very sensual, but it's not particularly sexual in, in, in the way that you normally associate with sensuality. Talk about writing a book that's very sensual and mm. has its characters experiencing uh, uh, their sexuality in, in different ways. Uh, talk about um, working that out so that it it's you keep the focus on the right thing, which is the people. Mm. I think that writing about food, writing about flavors is really just another way of writing about something that is so intensely felt. Mm -hmm. A physical sensation. Yes. And it is as close to writing about sex as you can, you know, Mm -hmm. but without having to use all the anatomy. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. Um, Well, there are more kinds of food than there are parts of the anatomy. (laughs) That's right. That's right. More entertaining language going on there, eh? (laughs) Well, it depends on the writer. Yes. (laughs) One of the things I think that that, uh, it's interested me in this book is as we're reading the first part, we're experiencing it from, you know, the point of view largely of a child. And you do that very well, taking us in and out of the child's language and perceptions. and, And we know when we're with the adult looking back, and we know when we're with the child, they are on the ground experiencing it. As you are writing this, you also, I, I guess, uh, on your, the note card you, not the prose you, is thinking, well, I've got these note cards out here that are going to completely change the perception of what goes happens back there. Could you talk about how that influenced your language and just architecting that must be very, must have been, was it a discovery for you when you were over on the other side? Um, saying, oh, my God, I've just, you know, I've, I've tweaked the mirror, um, mm-hmm. and, and now this all looks very different? Or was this something that you had you were just waiting, to, the mirror was out there, and you were just approaching it? <laughs> Gosh, that's such a good question. I wish I had, you know, I could write a, a paper for you. <laughs> you would make a great professor. Um, okay, let me, let me see if I could approach a good response. I think, let me give you an example. The second half of the book, mm-hmm. to have Deanne be part of this this revelation. She had to be the person that mm-hmm. tells Linda really the, the full scope of her story, right? Mm-hmm. But we also had to understand Deanne's story in the process. And it had to be Deanne because there was no one left. Mm-hmm. You know, for for um, reasons, you know, that sadly it was Deanne who was left in the family, right? Mm-hmm. So um, that's a lot to put on that character's shoulders. It is. Right? Mm-hmm. So that part actually came to me, even though this book took seven years to write, that part came to me in, in a matter of like three months. Mm. You know, it... It wrote itself. Really? How interesting. So then you had to go back and, and I guess, uh, retrofit the, the, the rest of the writing and the, and the prose and the plot. Exactly. 
boy, that's not, that must be a, a challenge. And I guess this is involves just a, a lot of rewriting and and uh, and as it, as they call it, say, child killing of your favorite babies. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, um, yes. You know, one of the things that um, I I remember from the first book and editing the first book was someone told me, you know, of the idea of pulling a thread through the narrative, and and that that uh, that imagery is really strong to me. Mm-hmm. You know, that um, well, one... with all the layers in this book, it makes perfect sense. Right, right. As you were rewriting the book. Did you um, find yourself taking out more, putting in more? What, what, where was the preponderance of your work? Mm. Well, it was really, um, <laughs> um, it was really to build the um, the sort of the going back and forth mm-hmm. of you know Linda the adult, and then remembering, you know, her, her childhood. It, it goes back and forth, right? And believe it or not, in the first draft, it went back and forth even more. Mm. So, you know, there's a fine line between, you know, st- structuring something that is complex and, and fun to read and, and interesting to read and something that is just confusing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Right, and so I, I actually went back, and and when when Linda goes back in you know in her memory, in time, it's ac- that part is actually um, for the most part chronological order. Mm-hmm. You know, you first it's the first grade, the second grade, the third grade, grade, so yeah, on. It's kind of like loops that go out a little bit further into the into the world. Exactly. Yes. And over seven years, that's a long time to hold all this in your mind. Um, how how did you do it, and how how hard was it for you to get away from Linda and and, and be Monique? <laughs> um, I'm always thinking about the book when I'm mm. writing it, so I don't get away from it. Mm. Um, and I think that that's necessary. Mm. And I think you know, as Linda, it took Linda the character you know, a while to to sort of really come to terms with who she is, you know, her family. Perhaps I was also taking that time for myself mm. to to do the same, not not so that I could just put it whole, you know, into a book, but simply for me to understand how a character like Linda, how her family members would be able to... to um, get to a point where she could stay. I've been speaking with Monique Trung. Her new novel is Bitter in the Mouth. Thank you for joining me, Monique. Thank you, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.